Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by a man who needs no introduction when it comes to fan engagement and marketing in football. Having previously worked for FIFA, Crystal Palace and London Sport, Andrea Angelescu is now the project manager of the Romanian Football Federation. He also does some work for UEFA and he produces the fortnightly newsletter Rendezvous, covering all things on the commercial side of football. Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Connor. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So thanks a lot for the invite. No problem. Andre, of course, a big part of your day-to-day job is fan engagement. Now, could you explain that to the listener, what fan engagement exactly is, and just some of the day-to-day responsibilities and roles involved? Um, I think I started to have an interest in fan engagement uh, during my studies at university uh, when I tried to find the definition for a fan engagement and it proved to be um, a bit difficult to identify a specific one because uh, after I've done some extensive research, I've uh, realized that there is no common understanding for what fan engagement actually means. However, um, after looking at uh, some academic papers and uh, industry reports, I think one of the best um, theorizations of it was made by an academic called uh, Yoshida, a Japanese uh, researcher uh, who identified fan engagement as um, the at the intersection of non-transactional behaviors and external behaviors. Um, So I think if we want to define it, um, it can be a challenge, but um, I think a lot of people are doing a lot of great work when it comes to uh, developing a good engagement with uh, their audiences, with their fans. And um, in my day-to-day work, I'm trying to to, uh, make use of this of this attitude and I'm trying to be as fan-centric as uh, possible and trying to make the organizations that I work with realize uh, the importance of having a relationship with their fans and really getting to understand them as much as possible. Fantastic. And in this digital age, Andre, there's so many competing influences for people's time with infinite amounts of content available, how has commercialization changed what it means to be a football fan nowadays? Um, I think a big part of it is related to the data uh, because um, commercial partners have uh, an understandable interest uh, around this topic, around data. And um, that's really easy to understand because we see how the world has changed in the last few decades. And we see a lot of technology companies that rely on a lot on data. If we we want to give some examples, we could uh, look at uh, Facebook maybe, we could look at, uh, I don't know, Netflix, if we want to tackle the video streaming business. So football clubs and sport organizations in general can as well be uh, data companies. Um, and they should be developing this attitude, uh, which makes them uh, to put a great emphasis on data and 
capture as much data as possible from their uh, fans, from their uh, stakeholders. Of course, by doing it in a meaningful way. So uh, they capture, capture the data so that they can give uh, value back to their stakeholders. And um, also they comply with all the regulations that have been much more strict in the last few years, especially after the introduction of the GDPR regulations in the European Union. And do you think there's a danger there, Andre, of exploiting fans? And we've heard in some, well, in many circles, perhaps in English football as well, that a lot of fans believe their love and passion for their local clubs in many instances is being taken advantage of. What do you think about that? Um, do, do you mean um, the, the the risk of um, not treating the data accordingly and uh, not complying? Yeah, uh, I think it's a subject that has been treated treated with uh, a lot of fear by a lot of the sport organizations because, um, of course, the the laws are a lot more strict uh, than before, but that shouldn't be something that. Um, um, the, the new regulations shouldn't be stop, something that stop the um, the clubs, the sport organizations from um, doing the best they can with the, the available data. And um, I say that because um, it's really, really crucial to understand that th these regulations were uh, introduced in order to make um, some sort of justice for the, the customer and to avoid uh the, the the spamming and the um i'm, I'm gonna say um maybe um the, the use of data that isn't uh, exactly that, that wasn't exactly purposeful uh before and uh if i am to give an example uh of um, a way in which data has done damage before um, is uh, something that is probably quite well known across the marketing industry. Um, I know that a woman in the UK um, was donating for a charity um, because she was passionate about the work they, they, that they were doing. Uh, but then that charity shared their, her details with another charity who passed them over uh, to another one. And this way she ended up on the marketing list of tens of charities that kept uh, uh, messaging her and encouraging her to donate. And because she was a good person, uh, she kept donating. And um, at the end of the day, she ended up being spammed with all these um, communications from a lot of charities. And um, in the end, she, she felt like she couldn't uh, give, uh, give back as much as she wanted because uh, Obviously, she kept donating for loads and loads of charities, uh, but the list kept growing. And uh, because she couldn't um, achieve her vision anymore, let's say it like this, uh, she had to self-harm herself, which is uh, an extreme example of how the bad use of data uh, can um, negatively, negatively affect a person. And that's why these stricter regulations have been introduced uh, in our industry as well and all of uh, Europe in all the industries of course um, that's quite welcome change Andre some unwelcome change in the industry perhaps has been COVID 
Now, we've seen a lot of organisations, particularly in the sports industry, innovate and adapt to the changing times. But what are some of the growing trends we have seen in early stages of 2021 so far when it comes to fan engagement and also sponsorship? Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we've been facing as well within the Romanian Football Federation is obviously the sport properties not being able to deliver uh, the original uh, commitments they had to the sponsors and to the commercial partners. So I think the sport organizations had to prove themselves that they are creative and uh, they had to find innovative ways to deliver uh, a new value proposition to these commercial partners and to the uh, sponsors. And uh, to give an example, I think um, a really pow powerful pillar on which uh, sport organizations can rely is probably um, the video uh, streaming. Um, we see more and more clubs trying to develop their own uh, over-the-top services maybe, or uh, just finding video streaming partners uh, through which they can improve uh, the experience of um, uh, their fans and also offering uh, uh, new places to expose their commercial partners. And um, also, I think uh, it's important to mention about the, the value that um, engagement apps can have. Uh, a lot of the clubs and sport organizations are developing their own um, uh, mobile applications that the fans can download and uh, even during the games, even if uh, they're not in the stadium, they can feel closer to the team uh, with the extra insights they can get through these new um, applications and through the exclusive content that can be delivered uh, through these means. Brilliant. And I know a big part of your work, Andre, also is the research of TV rights, broadcasting rights, so to speak. Now, we've seen the Premier League rights after hitting a peak in 2018. We've seen a decrease now. What does that mean for the economic model of English clubs going forward? Um, I think, um, especially if we look at the investment that Amazon has made uh, into football, uh, they seem to be willing to pay more and more um, and to allocate more funds towards the buy, the buying of media rights uh, in sports. Um, the traditional broadcasters are facing uh, an age where uh, these companies that have over-the-top models can um, intervene and uh, take a significant percentage of the market, uh, market cap. And um, I think this is something that will be seen also in the Premier League where... Uh, I think the next um, the, the next due date for the, ne the negotiation of the contracts is uh, this year, if not in 2020. And um, we are most likely to see a slight increase uh, from these over-the-top platforms uh, like Amazon. And uh, I think it's also likely that maybe we can see the broadcasters uh, being more willing to be more innovative when it comes to the way they um, show sport and um, um, I think it wouldn't be a surprise if we see uh, companies like BT Sport or Sky 
trying to come up with uh, just innovative solutions to improve the viewing uh, experience of the viewers. And um, I remember a great example. Uh, it's the, what BT, I think, did in 2018 with the FIFA World Cup when they had the 360 cameras that um, the fans could, could use uh, through the, I think it was BBC or BT app, uh, and they could um, see a, a 360 um, perspective of the game from uh, various spots in the stadium, which was, I think, the first of its kind and uh, a great initiative when it comes to fan engagement. Because at the end of the day, um, fan engagement comes to, the, to being the growth strategy of long-term relationships between uh, sport institutions and uh, the fan groups. And uh, the clubs and sport organizations have got to be innovative to uh, sustain this growth of um, uh, the relationship between them and the stakeholders, in this instance, the fan groups. Of course. And Andre, do you foresee a day, possibly within the next five to 10 years, even where the likes of these streaming platforms like Amazon, Netflix, the zone, as we've seen in Germany and Austria, usurp the likes of Sky Sports and BT, especially in the UK? Mm, I think it might be early to, um, to give a clear verdict, but um, there is a chance, obviously, because um, these technology companies uh, have um, really high revenue streams that they can rely on. And um, and anything is possible. And I think uh, other than this uh, really, uh, really rich revenues that, that they can use uh, in order to overtake the traditional broadcasters, they also uh, are, they are also companies that nurture uh, innovation and research and development. And I think um, that can make a big difference because um, if we look at Amazon, Netflix, they are in the business, no matter of which business we speak about, for an infinite game. And um, I think sometimes uh, these traditional broadcasts can have a short-term vision rather than a long-term one. And they might be focusing on the present moment and on winning some uh, bids for uh, specific competitions that have been that have traditionally been uh, quite popular and have been delivering good ROIs. But then these technology companies with long-term vision and uh, with the vision of being in an infinite game, they can just test different uh, new technologies on smaller competitions maybe, and then scale them when they think uh, the market is ready for that by making um, significant bids over the traditional broadcasts. And then what's the benefit of having these games or some of these games for free on streaming platforms? Um, to the best of my knowledge, you have the DFB Pokal in Germany, the Coppa Italia in Italy, both live for free on YouTube as, this, as you do with the Segunda in Spain, or you did, albeit for a brief limited time. And the Brazil Campeonato is live for free now on Facebook. What benefits are there to hosting games for free on these streaming platforms? 
I think it depends to the to the strategies of the companies that we're speaking about. Um, for example, um, within the Romanian Football Federation, um, we have been trying to, um, let's say, avoid recently to uh, grow a lot our social networks because at the end of the day, um, there is a metaphor that we use that um, our accounts on Facebook, uh, YouTube maybe, it's just a land that we um, borrow from someone, which is uh, the owners of these big companies. And um, I think the vision is at the end of the day, try to build your own um, databases, uh, which you are uh, uh, an owner of and a processor of. And no matter what uh, happens, no matter how technology evolves, you'd be able to just signpost the people that you have the rights to contact to the um, to the new platforms that will emerge. I think a lot of the companies that um, just do the live streaming, the free live streamings on YouTube, on Facebook, uh, are just trying to build um, awareness at the moment uh, to the fact that their games can be watched for free. And then also uh, it's probably interesting in terms of testing um, for uh, specific markets because uh, platforms such as Facebook would have um, uh, quite good deal, quite good amount of uh, analytics that would give you access to and you'd uh, be able to see what kind of people are interested in your uh, product. Uh, you'd be able to see to which uh, international markets your um, league could appeal or your competition could appeal. So I think it's uh, it all comes down to the strategy of your business and um, the move that you decide uh, to make. I suppose one particular thing that I'm interested about is, of course, you look at the Premier League and how huge it is globally. I've been fortunate, fortunate enough to have lived in places like New York, San Francisco, and now Dubai. And I can attest to the image of it worldwide. I've done the Premier League morning, breakfast mornings in New York and San Francisco. And over here in Dubai, I can attest to it it's most certainly <laughs> being in a bar packed out watching bloody Southampton, Newcastle of all things. But <laughs> you have leagues just below the Premier League, in inverted commas, La Liga and Syria. What steps are they taking to grow internationally now and expand their market base? Um, I think it's really a, a really, really interesting topic. And uh, here we have a really good example that we could look at, and that is definitely La Liga. Um, they have been, um, they, they definitely have a very solid and clear internalization strategy. And you can see that in their actions and in the, even in the support they give to the clubs. If we look at um, ABAR, um, they have been uh, receiving some support to uh, grow in um, the Eastern markets. Um, also, if you see uh, an Asian player in one of the clubs, um, they would be encouraged to exploit that market and uh, to try to grow um, internationally using this asset they would have, uh, the international player from an Eastern country. And... Um, 
other than this support they give to the clubs, uh, they also have specific actions um, they are trying to pursue in order to uh, become more international and uh, diversify their international audience. Uh, for example, they are opening some sort of a museum exhibition that's going to be um, toured around the world. And um, they also have um, um, some companies, media companies that they work with in um, emerging regions that are identifies uh, to be of great potential for them. So um, they definitely try to create a unique uh, value proposition for these um, emerging markets that they can um, exploit with their, um, with their product that would be appealing for the general pro product, which is the uh, competition, La Liga. And you see the effort, energy and resources spent on growing their respective leagues internationally. And why do we see more of an added shift, especially in the past few years, Andre, towards a European Super League or a restructuring of the Champions League even, so to speak? I mean, how fearful are you that will only serve to alienate an ever-desensitized fan base in football? Because we all know football without fans is nothing. I mean, as a Chelsea supporter, even I have to admit, I'm a bit more desensitized or less of a fan, so to speak, since that ability to attend games at Stanford Bridge was taken away to, uh, for me. And it's the same for a lot of people. Um, it's no coincidence in my eyes, Liverpool's home form at the moment, six home defeats in a row. <laughs> Huge factor being the no, you know, no fans at Anfield. I mean, what's your verdict? Yeah, I think it's a really sensitive topic and... I'm also a great example of it as a fan because I don't know if you're familiar, but in Romania, we had um, the most successful team in the country, Stella Bucharest. Uh, they won the UEFA Champions League, uh, which was called the Champions Cup back in 1986. And um, around um, 2006, let's say, uh, the club was... Uh, um, bought by a businessman, a Romanian businessman called, called uh, Gigi Becali. And uh, he decided to... Um, to uh, so basically, that's when the club went private because before that, it was owned by the Ministry of um, uh, Defense in Romania. And um, after that, uh, he was in charge of the club for uh, 10 years or so. And... Then the Ministry of Defense started to contest uh, the way he bought the club. And because of that, they started uh, a new club um, and um, went to court for, uh, to, in order to be allowed to use the name Stella for, the, uh, for their own club, so for, for the ministry's club. And this way, uh, now we have a team which is called Stella in the third division. And uh, the previous team um, uh, that this businessman uh, bought and uh, made uh, uh, private uh, is now called FCSB, uh, which comes from football club Stella Bucharest, obviously. And uh, they're in the first league of Romania. But the thing is, none of these clubs is uh, the real Stella anymore, or at least in my opinion. 
Um, the matter of the history of the club is still disputed. Basically, um, the Army's club is having the uh, heritage and the history up to 2006. And then they took a break and uh, they started again from the lower leagues in 2010 or so. And then the, this FCSB club uh, is functioning, uh, at least in pay, on paper, since 2006. So none of the clubs, uh, I think, because of this dispute and incident, which uh, took years uh, in court, um, the clubs lost their identity. And um, if we speak about engaging fans, um, it's really important to understand that football is a socially and culturally embedded um, uh, sport. And um, because of that, the fans that consume it uh, have different motivations. And um, at the end of the day, it's really important for the sport clubs to understand those motivations and uh, to take account of them when they uh, take any action, basically, and they, when they speak about the strategy. But because I think it's important to uh, have this fan-centric uh, philosophy when you speak about uh, a strategy, no matter if you're a governing body or a, a private football club. I suppose that's the beauty of football, though. A lot of people have different motivations, but it's the game itself. It's so powerful. Yeah, it's a social definitely. social construct to kind of unify everyone. Um, I know you personally, yourself, Andre, and I know how big you are on your belief in how much I suppose football can be, you know, it can make the world a better place. I suppose from your experience to date, have you any heartwarming stories? I mean, you wish to share about possible projects you've worked on in the past. Yeah, definitely. Um, a real, a really um, successful, I'd say event that uh, I've previously worked on is a charity football match followed by a gala which took place in Romania um, and um, it was an event organized uh, in order to fundraise for a former Romanian football player called Mihai Neshu. He was um, a player in the national team of Romania, a player of Stella Bucharest and uh, he was a player in the Netherlands for FC Utrecht when he got seriously injured uh, in one of the training sessions at the club. He was transported um, in the hospital immediately. He was really close to lose his life, unfortunately. Um, and after this incident, he um, got paralyzed uh, and he's currently uh, disabled, not being able to move from uh, uh, the bottom of his neck below. So um, this person um, went through a lot of uh, medical operations, interventions after this injury. Um, a lot of people feared for his life for a really long period of time. Um, and once he got stabled, stable, he uh, decided to find a new uh, purpose in life uh, after... Um, uh, his career as a professional footballer and uh, he thought that the best way that he could give back to the community and to the people in his um, uh, hometown in the west of Romania 
was to uh, give uh, to create a foundation which would help uh, disabled uh, young people. Um, and uh, he basically um, supports them with the medical uh, procedures and with the with the treatment they uh, need in order to uh, get better. And um, he, all the money he earned from um, football uh, prior to his um, injury and all his financial resources went into this foundation. And um, he basically started to... Um, neglect his self let's say because he he's a really good person from uh the from the deep um uh, of his soul i think he he's a genuinely good person and he puts others um before himself and basically because of these facts uh one of his former teammates um uh, romanian um also a Romanian footballer who played for uh, Stella Bucharest and later on for Ajax as well, called Giorgio Garado. He decided to organize these uh, uh, events. Uh, he, his plan was to run them every two years. Um, and he, the event was called Unitz uh, Pentru Mihai, United for Mihai, which was the name of the of Mihai Nesho. Um, and um, I volunteered for this second event and um, I think the most impressive thing that I could see uh, when I went to Arada for this uh, football match and for the gala was the fact that um, this, um, this person, Mihai Neshu, um, even if he could just move his head, basically, and he, he was in a wheelchair, um, which was controlled with his mouth, um, he, on the day before the event and on the day of the event, um, which was uh, a friendly football match, he was at the stadium trying to make sure that everything runs smoothly. Then all the um, branding that you could see at the stadium, uh, the access boards for the media, for the guests, um, and all the signage that you could see in the perimeter, it was designed by himself. Even if he can't move his hands, he can't move his uh, legs. He just uses his mouth, and he's such a determined person, determined person uh, who is making a difference for uh, a lot of souls every day. And um, even when an event was organized in order to help himself, because he forgets about himself and just puts the other ahead of himself, he still was fully involved and uh, just gave everything just as he did when he was on the pitch because he was a footballer that um, was always um, really determined. You saw him doing a lot of sliding tackles without getting a lot of yellow or red cards. Um, so I think uh, he, ha he has something deep inside him which makes him a really special person and I am really grateful for having the for having had the opportunity to work on an event uh, organized in his honor. That's an absolutely incredible story. Um, I'll be sure to link Mihai's foundation down below in the show notes. And how long has Mihai been running this foundation for? Um, I think uh, he's been doing it for around five years, maybe. 
something like that. And at the moment, they have an amazing project. They are trying to build um, uh, a bigger center uh, in at at the in the outskirts of uh, this Romanian city called Arada. Um, and the project is again incredible. And uh, it started with uh, Mihai's vision to um, make this foundation bigger and accessible to more people. And he actually designed the whole plan for uh, for the foundation. It's incredible, really, that um, you know nowadays we're almost like football junkies. We're just waiting for a next fix. When's the next game on? You have social, you have highlights in social media. You have every single game on every single channel. But you hear stories now and again, just like what you elaborated upon there with Mihai, and then it does knock you for six. It's absolutely inspirational stuff. Um, I mean, it's quite unfortunate. I haven't been made aware of this story before. And I'm pretty certain there's plenty of pe other people out there who haven't either. So I'll definitely link that below in the show notes. Um, I mean, getting back to the current day now, Andre, in the past, you've worked at huge tournaments, uh, most recently being the 2019 Women's World Cup. Um, this summer, I know you're part of the UEFA team who's hoping to stage this summer's Euros. I mean, being in amongst the midst of things now, what are the big challenges for you guys at this moment in staging this event? Um, I think it's really hard to deal with the unpredictable because um, with um, the really changing times that we're living and with the really unpredictable number of COVID cases that um, the host countries are having to deal with, uh, it's really difficult to plan things. And the, the best you can do is just working on several scenarios, um, which is what uh, UEFA is currently doing with the UEFA Euro 2020. Um, of course, uh, the organizing team is um, planning on both the full stadium, uh, the possibility of the games to be played in full uh, in front of full uh, crowds, and also um, the possibility to, at the other end, the possibility to play in front of empty stands, which would be really sad, unfortunately. But uh, I think it would still be a celebration of football, which would be appreciated by the fans, even if it would be uh, from in front of the, their TVs at home. Brilliant. And then could you tell us a bit more about your work with the Romanian Football Federation? I know you work in a project managerial capacity for them also. Yeah, so uh, as I was saying, um, the sport organizations are having to, are starting to pay more attention to the da to data. And uh, with especially with the pandemic, uh, they have been starting to be more digitally driven. And uh, my work within the Romanian Football Federation is at the cross of these two areas of um, being data-driven and also trying to um, be more um, uh, aware of the digital possibilities and opportunities that might come up uh, with a digital transformation. Uh, we are working on a couple of digital products that we will uh, launch in uh, the upcoming months and hopefully um, they would become something that would be 
um, good examples to share at the across the industry in uh, in the coming months. So I think watch this space and uh, hopefully you'll find inspiration in our work in Fantastic. a couple of months or so. Fantastic. <laughs> and then I know in your spare time, Andre, you're quite passionate about the fortnightly newsletter which you produce called The Rendezvous. Could you tell everyone a bit about that? I've read the last two issues actually as well. Quite, <laughs> quite fascinating, really. Thank you. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, rendezvous is something that I'm really passionate about and it's exactly uh, putting into a, a weekly newsletter or a fortnightly newsletter my passion for uh, all things uh, commercial, marketing, digital, um, while also looking at hot topics in, in the industry such as women's football or uh, esports. And um, uh, I'm a person that believes in uh, continuous education. And I think that this newsletter is one of the things that uh, allows me to give back to all the people interested in the same stuff as me in this area of uh, sport. And then going forward, Andrew, I mean, you've worked for huge organizations like FIFA, UEFA, you've worked for clubs such as Crystal Palace. Uh, I know now you're doing your own bit of creative work with Rendezvous. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Um, I think, uh, again, it's really unpredictable, especially with the current events that we've seen. But um, I really love the buzz around these major events, such as the FIFA World Cup or the UEFA Women, uh, UEFA Euro. Um, no matter if we speak about the men's or the women's versions. Uh, so I would really like to keep playing an active role in the organizing teams of these major competitions um, because um, that's something that, as a fan of football, makes me really happy to know that uh, I'd be able to be a part of this major buzz around the events. And then... I know that are uh, in the world there are a lot of people that feel the same like myself and I would be really happy and I'd feel really accomplished to know that I'm able to deliver that uh, amount of joy and uh, happiness to a lot of people. And then also um, I'm really passionate about uh, sustainability and making football a more sustainable business. Um, so maybe in uh, the upcoming years, I will try to focus all my knowledge and efforts around this topic, which is quite hot in the industry. And uh, maybe I will be able to associate myself with um, a number of people that would share my uh, vision and values in this aspect, uh, sustainability in football. And hopefully uh, we can start a venture or something to um, tackle this this matter. That's awesome. Certainly exciting times ahead for both yourself, Andre, and Romanian football. Now, should anyone wish to reach out to you on social media, Andre, where's best to connect? Uh, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, so you can find me uh, over there. And then um, also you can check my website if you want to read about my professional background uh, which uh, I 
fully shared on uh, sportmktg.net. Um, and um, you can also find my email address over there. So if you want to get in touch, please don't hesitate to do so. Fantastic. I'll be sure to link all below on the show notes. Andre, top man, absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks a lot, Connor. Cheers.